Now let's listen to this recitation, then we'll have the message. I wonder where he lives. My God, whom I confess, where is his dwelling place? What is his home address? Is it in the heavens beyond the starry skies? Is it Eden's garden fair, the earthly paradise? Is it the celestial city where Jesus is the light? Can I really reach him with my prayer in the darkness of the night? Oh, yes, I know I can. For God is everywhere. He fills all time and space above, below, and here. And yet I wonder still, beyond the heaven's dome, is there a place today that God regards as home? Where then can I find it? There's no burning bush in sight, no tabernacle for his cloud and his Shekinah light. There's no temple now, no sacrifice today. But we do have his word. We know that Jesus is the way. Holy ground and temple and sacrifice is he. And wonder of wonders. Jesus dwells in me. He lives within my heart and soul. He inhabits all my praise. So my address is God's address and will be all my days and in each heart where Christ abides to comfort reign and bless wherever dwells the son of God there is God's address appreciate that so the question then is are you God's address are you a habitation for the Christ of heaven and the Spirit of God? If you're not, you certainly can be. Amen. And so we're glad to meet all of you. We know some of you are certainly born-again, blood-bought, heaven-bound children of God. And others of you may be in that pursuit or, this, or seeking that kind of relationship. And I hope and pray that as a result of the message, you'll find that. So whatever your spiritual condition is, let's join our hearts as we come to the word of God, but first we pray, Lord God, we must pray. Lord, my dependency is upon you. I'm not here trusting in any eloquence or being erudite myself. I'm here, Lord, by your divine appointment. I thank you for this church having these series of meetings. We're thankful for a church that uses the leadership gift called the evangelist. We're glad, Lord, for the opportunities you set before us, all this potential is in this room for today, tonight, Monday through Wednesday. We have no, need, we have no idea yet what the outcome is going to be, but we know you said that we can call upon you and you'll answer us and show us great and mighty things Amen. which we know not. We, we do not yet know what you intend to do or what your purposes for this meeting are. We do pray that you'd use it, though, and meet every spiritual need that is here today, especially and who do not know personally the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Guide us through these prophetic passages this week. 
And may we be enthralled with our Savior, our soon-coming King, and may we be living in such, an, in such a way that we'd have confidence before Him and not be ashamed at His coming. Guide us, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Did you know there were 350 prophecies that were fulfilled when the Lord Jesus came the first time? So the Lord Jesus came and 350 prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled and realized in Him. Even that, the odds of that are astronomical that one man, the God-man, Christ Jesus, could fulfill in detail every one of the 350 prophecies concerning His first coming. But there are 1,845 prophecies concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ spanning 17 books of the Bible. Approximately one-third of your Bible is prophecy. And so 1,845 prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ. And I thought we'd just take a couple of minutes on each one of those. <laughs> Pastor Turner, why are you laughing? Why? <laughs> no, we do want to. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you have a clock up there because I've been preaching for 44 years. It's a lot of stuff that I can present, and so I got I to gotta have a gauge. All right, so praise the Lord. We, we did a prophecy conference here before, and we talked about our Lord Jesus and how magnificent he is in his first coming and his second coming. He came the first time to wear the thorn, the crown of thorns, the thorn of crowns. He's coming the second time wearing the king's crown. Amen. He came the first time to be judged for us. He's coming the second time to judge and rule right. and reign. Amen. And our first time together, we did what I call Prophecy Conference 1, <laughs> where we dealt with a lot of things. We dealt extensively with the uh, rapture of the church and the rise of the Antichrist and the purpose of the Antichrist and all he's going to do in the tribulation period. We dealt with the revelation of Christ as he comes to the earth and sets up his kingdom. And we, we dealt with the eight signs of his coming, where we gave a lot of information. Some of you note takers, you, you were burning with that, because I gave so many statistics and so many things concerning the signs of his coming. There's no sign for the rapture of the church. You understand that? The rapture of the church has always been imminent. It could happen at any moment. It could have happened in Paul's day. It could have happened long ago. It still hasn't happened. I remember when I got saved in September of 1976, 20 years old, serving in the U.S. Air Force, stationed in Okinawa, Japan, uh, Roman Catholic, lost as could be, go to Mass on Sunday and live like the devil the rest of the week. But I heard the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus, my, my drinking buddy, a guy I got drunk with so many times, Bo Nelson got wonderfully saved at Maranatha Baptist Church in Okinawa, Japan, and invited me to his believer's baptism, and there it was, I heard the saving gospel of Christ for the very first time. Amen. I guess I'm one of those rare birds, because the first time I heard it, I believed it and received it, and was radically, dramatically transformed by the grace of God. But I remember when I got saved, they said, oh, boy, it's a good thing you Good thing you just got saved. Lord Jesus is, is coming soon. You, you just made it, man. And that was 1976. And then I became a preacher. Two months after I was saved, God called me to preach. Amen. I know it was a call of God because I had no idea 
what that was all about. Coming out of Roman Catholicism, well, I certainly knew I didn't want to be a Catholic priest. And they told, and I, and I preached, I said, if we're still here by the year 2000, I'll be so surprised. Well, guess what? I'm very surprised. <laughs> the Lord Jesus has not yet come. And we, the, the church, is waiting for this coming of the Lord in the air. He comes first in the air, what's known as the rapture. That's not a Bible word. It is a Bible principle, a snatching away, comes from a Latin word. And so we are waiting for the Lord Jesus to return in the air. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all have to face physical death, but we shall all be changed. The word is metamorphosis. A metamorphosis. We're in the creepy, crawly caterpillar stage. And caterpillars with ferocious appetites. Brother Kim has no idea what I'm going to do this afternoon. He has no clue. But anyway, ferocious appetite. And then a former chrysalis and out comes a totally different creature, a butterfly. And that is the word God uses to talk about the change is going to make in your life and mine who are saved and born again. We hear the shout. We hear the voice of the archangel. I dealt with that last time in our Prophecy Conference. Why is Michael the Archangel coming with Jesus at the rapture? You've, ever heard, you've read that a hundred times, but it's never crossed your mind, has it? Why Michael the Archangel coming at the rapture? Right, that was the last message. And so, and the trump of God, not the Donald Trump. That's a different trump. But the trump of God is so loud it wakes the dead. Right. And then those who died in Christ before the rapture, are resurrected. We are instantly glorified who are alive on the earth to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Well, we want to talk about those things. But this is Prophecy Conference 2, which means different messages, different emphasis of prophetic writ. And so I want to take you as we begin to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 is part of the Olivet Discourse. So you have Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 that were given by the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Olives. He's been in the temple giving a temple discourse, uh, chastising verbally the, prof, the, the, the Pharisees who rejected him in Matthew 23. Now he makes his way across the Kidron Valley toward the east, goes up the western slope of the Mount of Olives, and he's seated there. And his disciples come with those questions. When shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of your coming? Again, that passage I dealt with in Prophecy Conference 1. But in the same context, because both Matthew 24 and 25 are all words of our Savior. So we have to take note. Because our blessed Lord Jesus, our Redeemer, our Justifier, our Reconciler, our soon-coming King is speaking. We have his direct words in Matthew 25 as we deal with this parable of the ten virgins. And so we want to deal with that this morning. And I am assuming that somewhere around 12 o'clock he wrapped this up. 10.30 to 12, that's a good hour and a half together. And so as I was studying this material, I realized there's way too much for one message. So I'm going to do a two-part message. Part one is this morning. Part two is tonight on Hospital Road, 
at that other place we're going, and we have a lot of information for you here in Matthew 25, and so we want to, uh, we want to begin that here this morning. And did I have a bag over there? I have a bag. You know what? When I preach camps, preaching to youth at camps, I always use my bag. I always preach something where I have a, an object in a bag that goes along with that message. So campers, I got a bag for you here this morning. So I'll be alluding to that. But here in Matthew chapter 25, the Lord Jesus gives us this parable of the ten virgins. And really the question is, or from the context, is are you prepared? Are you prepared for the coming of the Lord? As we see in this parable, some were prepared and others weren't. And as we go through this this morning and again this evening, and again, whatever I don't cover this morning, I'll cover this evening. And so I want you to come for both sessions. If you're not usually coming back out on Sunday nights, would you consider it today? Because you, you are intelligent looking people. I know you'll never settle for a half of a message. I am confident that every one of you will be back at 6 o'clock on Hospital Road to hear part two. Am I right? Amen. A little weak, but uh, we'll have a full participation. And so here we have this introduction in verse 1, Matthew 25, verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. I'll just read the context. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And so this introduction to this parable is that the kingdom of heaven is likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. All right, this is an Eastern wedding. This is an ancient Jewish concept of marriage that we in the West do not understand. Because Eastern in Eastern weddings, it's the bridegroom that gets the attention. Not so in our culture. In our culture, it's the bride. She's the shining star of that ceremony, not the groom. Now, I performed many weddings. 
I was pastor of First Baptist Church down there in the state of Washington, Pasco, Washington, First Baptist Church. Did a lot of weddings. And here's how it goes. Pastor and the bridegroom. We make an entrance from this room over here. And we come out, we sashay down to the front where the, where the pulpit is. No music's playing. Nobody's standing. Nobody's crying. Pastor, groom, we come out, no fanfare, no attention at all. Oh, but now the bride is at the back door, ready to come down our center aisle. And when she appears in all of her radiance and glory, the music plays. And down she comes down the aisle. Everybody's standing. Everybody's crying. She's so beautiful. But in the Eastern culture, that's not the way it is. I've been to the Middle East many, many times. I host tours to Israel, been there 10 times. I'd love to take you on my next tour, praying for Israel and Hamas and Israel and Hezbollah, his, Israel and the Houthis, Israel and uh, Iran, all those. We, we, we've got to deal with those things. And, and so I postponed, I was supposed to go this year, but I postponed it until end of December 2025, beginning of January 2026. I trust by then uh, the wars will be over, the tourism and these things will be restored. So if you'd like to go with us, let me know. I do have brochures. Thank you for this commercial moment. And so in Eastern weddings where I have been, and also in India, I've been to India preaching many times and have attended weddings in these Eastern settings. <laughs> And let me tell you, it's the groom who gets the attention. I was at a wedding in India one time where the groom had golden clothes. How, where did they find that? Golden clothes, and he's decked out with all of these necklaces and jewelry. He looks absolutely fabulous, and there's the bride. And this is true of Oriental ancient weddings, even Psalm 19. For in them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. As the glory of the sun comes up over the eastern horizon. And then it becomes brilliant and bright. That's the description of a bridegroom in ancient Israel. Which is as a bridegroom coming. It doesn't say there's just a bride coming out of her chamber. The bridegroom. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, and he is the center of attention. He is the one with all the glory and the shining and the brightness. We as the church are the bride. We have a full message on that coming this Tuesday night. So I'm giving this introduction. It's actually an introduction to both the messages. So Tuesday night we'll be dealing with Revelation 19 and the marriage of the Lamb's wife, the marriage of the Christ of Christ and his church, and all of those wonderful applications and ramifications. So here we have this Eastern wedding contrasted with Western weddings in this. In a Western wedding, United States, Canada, Western Hemisphere, what you do is you come together as the engaged couple and you set a date. Our date was January 20th, 1979. 
We just celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary, but we set a date. We set a time. We sent out invitations. Come to our wedding and please bring gifts. <laughs> Why else do you send out those invitations? Come on, let's be honest. And it's all set, it's all in order, and everything is orchestrated and planned. That's not an Eastern wedding. I tell you what, back in ancient Israel, you never knew when the bridegroom was coming. Hence, these ten virgins are waiting and watching for the bridegroom because they don't know when he's coming. And this is exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ is doing. When you get saved, when you're born again, you're a blood-bought, heaven-bound child of God, you become part of the bride. We are betrothed to our Savior, and we are now... Like these ten virgins, we are waiting for our Lord to come, our heavenly bridegroom. We do not know when he's coming. And again, when a Jewish man and woman were betrothed, they're engaged, uh, the, the groom goes away. He goes away to build the bridal house. He's going to his father's house. He's going to build the place where he and his wife will live. He attaches it to his father's house. A lot of reasons for that, and you'll be right by your in-laws. Wouldn't that be great? Can you imagine Solomon who had a thousand mother-in-laws? Isn't that something? <laughs> and the groom-to-be the attaches his house. It takes about a year to build this bridal house where he and his wife are going to live. And then right attached to the father's house when the when the parents are aged, then he takes care of his aged parents. It works out very well. And so after the house is complete, it's the father, the father, the father of the Jewish groom who inspects the house and gives permission for his son to go get his bride. But you never know when the father is going to approve the house and give permission to go get his bride. So it was always a waiting. It was a watching. So it is, the Lord Jesus explains that in John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For a mere man to make that statement would be blasphemous. <laughs> you believe in God, believe, believe also in me. The same faith and trust you put in God the Father, put in me as God the Son. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. Our heavenly bridegroom has gone back to heaven to prepare the celestial city, the new Jerusalem for you and me. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you into myself. It's the, the joy of the bridegroom going to get his bride. The bride had full assurance that when her husband-to-be finished the house, he was coming back to get her. No doubt about it, fully assured, and we're fully assured our Savior is coming for us, and we don't doubt it. We don't. We, 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 we know it's going to be true. His word is true. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And that's what's going to make heaven heaven. Yes. Where I am, there ye may be also. Right. I'm looking forward to the golden streets and the crystal fountain and the tree that bears 12 manner of fruits. Hope one of those is mango. I'm looking forward the, the celestial city, the new I'm looking forward to all of it. But what's going to make heaven heaven is that my Lord Jesus will be there. 
the one who died in my place and poured out his life's blood for the forgiveness of my sin, the one who rose again triumphant from the grave. What other religious leader could ever make a, play, make a claim like that? He's the only one who rose again from the dead because of who he is. He rose again because he's God in the flesh. And death is the penalty for sin. But Jesus Christ is not a sinner. He's not inherently a sinner. He's God incarnate. He has no sinful nature that could ever be tempted by sin. And so that's what Peter meant in Acts chapter 2. And it said it's impossible for death to hold him. His death is the penalty for sin, and he's not a sinner. Now, when he's on the cross, he became our sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And when he became our sin, he could die because he took your place and mine. It was our substitute bearing in his body our sins upon the tree. And when he cried out, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaking me? In those moments, he became you, and he became me. Jesus Christ not only died for me, he died as me. I was with him on that cross in some mysterious way, and he became my sin. Then he could die. But when he died, he paid the price for my sin because the wages of sin is death, and God demands death for sin. Somebody's got to die for your sin. And if you don't believe with all the depths and the core of your being in your heart that Jesus Christ died the death that you should die, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ suffered everything on that cross, you would have suffered in the lake of fire forever. You don't believe that, you're going to die in your sins. And you're going to go to a devil's hell for eternity because you reject the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the compassion of God and the pity of God to even provide a salvation for you. When he became my sin, he could die. But when he finished the payment for my sin, he had to rise again. Amen. Death could not hold him, for he himself is not a sinner. And so the Lord has gone to prepare a place for Having died, shed his blood, and rose again from the dead, he's gone now to prepare a place for his bride. And only saved, born-again, blood-bound, heaven-bound children of God are his bride. If you're not saved this morning, you are not part of the bride because you're not part of the church, the body of Christ assembling in this place. And so we're waiting for him to come again. We don't know when he's coming. Why don't we know? Because only the Father knows. You see that in Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus speaking of his coming again. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, there is a group who are false teachers called Jehovah's False Witnesses. Have you heard them? The Jehovah's False Witnesses. They try to use Matthew 24, 36 to say that Jesus Christ is not God. Because the Jehovah Witnesses and Charles Taz Russell and Judge Rutherford, who started this group back in New York City back in the, in the 1800s, they strip Christ of his deity. Yeah. It's because of who Christ is that made what he did so important. But they strip him of his deity, say he's not God, he's only the Son of God. I said, wow. That's like me saying, I'm not a human being, I'm only the son of a human being. How ludicrous is that? 
So they try to say, since Jesus doesn't even know when he's coming, only the Father knows, only Jehovah knows, Jesus can't be God. Well, these people err in error, not knowing the scriptures and certainly not knowing anything about Jewish culture and customs. <laughs> because here's what, here what it is. When Jesus goes to prepare a place for us, it's the Father who determines that it's time for the Son to go get his bride. It's very Jewish. And so the Lord is coming and we are among those that are waiting and watching as these ten virgins are, which took their lamps. What kind of lamps are we talking about? Well, in my bag here, I have a lamp. This is what they look like. This is a little one, which I got in Israel. You can buy bigger ones if you want to bring them back and maybe risk pottery breaking in your luggage. <laughs> But this is what the lamps of the first century are talking about. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is a lamp in this belly holds the oil. And then you put the wick into the oil and you light the end of this wick and the oil goes up that wick and keeps that flame burning. So these are lamps. And every one of us in this room are lamps. Lamps speak of lives. Lamps speak of souls. And everyone in this room is going to fall into one of two categories mentioned in verse 2. Five of them were wise. Five were foolish. And the Lord is going to describe that foolishness here for us in just a few, a few minutes here. But every one of you, some of you in this room are wise. Some of you in this room are foolish. You're unprepared. You're forgetful. You're ignorant. And you're not wise, all right? I'm going to give you the words of the Lord Jesus. I don't know you personally, but I know one thing. If you're not saved, you're among the foolish. And so foolishness, verse 3, they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Now, that would be similar to what else I have in this bag. That would be like taking a flashlight on a camping trip, or you're going to go out somewhere at night, or maybe you're going to go spelunking. Do you like that? And you have a light. This is what it should look like. But the wise were those, of course, who had this flashlight without the batteries. All right? Look in there. You see that? Empty! You see that? That's foolishness that you'd bring... Uh, help me out there, brother. There you go. All right, yeah, yeah. It would be foolish to bring a flashlight and not bring the batteries. All right, that's a modern illustration of the same thing with the lamp. A flashlight without batteries is like a lamp without oil. And I'm sure you would agree that that would be pretty foolish. Put this in your luggage and no batteries in it. But that's, a, that's what we're talking about. And so the lamps are lives, the lamps are, soul, are, are, are souls. The foolish are those that have no oil. Oil in the Old Testament and the New Testament is a type of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, you either have the Holy Spirit in you or you don't. It's not some middle ground. It's not, well, I'm progressing and I'm, and I'm, and I'm working toward getting the Holy Spirit. No, you either have him in you or you don't. 
is my wife mentioned, you are either a temple of God or you're not. And so the wise are those that are full of the Spirit of God. That's the hallmark difference between someone who's just religious and someone who is genuinely born again. All right, so if you're just religious, you do not have the indwelling Christ or Spirit living within you. You're still in darkness, you're still in blindness, you're still in spiritual death. Ephesians 2, 1, and you hath he quickened, you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. If you're not saved, you are still dead in trespasses and sins. You've not yet been made alive by the energy of the Spirit of God that comes within you when you receive Christ as your Savior. And so the foolish are those who do not have Christ in them, the indwelling Spirit in them, the Wise are those that do have Christ in the indwelling spirit in them. That's what Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope, the confident expectation of glory. Amen. The spirit of God comes within you. Christ comes within you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Remember, there's only one God, one God. The Lord our God is one, Deuteronomy 6.4. One is the Hebrew, Echad. I say, you know you're speaking Hebrew properly when you spit on somebody. <laughs> Bethlehem. Shechem. Shechem. All right, so the, 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 the Shechemah of God. All right, so the Lord our God is the Ka, that's a plural noun. Wonder why. Just like Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim. Beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim is a plural noun. Let us make man in our image. Who's he talking to? Angels? Are angels going to help him create? Let us make man in our image. Who will go for us? And who shall we? No, God is a oneness. But within that oneness, there are three personalities. Now, this boggles the minds of people around the world. I've preached in 30 different countries on six continents. I've preached Islamic people, Buddhist people, Shinto people, many kind of people. And sometimes they'll come up to me after a service. You believe in three gods? No, I don't. I believe in one. The Lord our God is one. He has revealed himself in three personalities. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's some mystery there, I understand. But the Lord Jesus enters into you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Because the Lord Jesus, in his now bodily form, seated at the right hand of the Father, should come into you, that'd be pretty crowded, right? <laughs> so the Lord Jesus does enter in you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. Revelation 3.20. Well, how does Jesus Christ, who was chosen to remain in the physical body, which he was born of a virgin, and grew up with a sinless life, gave that body, a body as thou prepared me, Hebrews 10. And he gave that body as a sacrifice for your sin. He rose again bodily, physically in that same body, and ascended back to heaven in that same body. In that same body, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's part of the what we call the kenosis. Part of his love for you was that God, who is spirit, Jesus was spirit, one with his Father from eternity past. 
that his spirit couldn't die for us. So John chapter 4, he who was spirit from eternity past, now leaves the glories of heaven, comes crashing into human history in a body, a God body with God blood that can be shed because he's the second Adam. The first Adam created from the dirt, right, the ground. But is there blood in the ground? Where did Adam get his blood? There's no blood in the dust of the earth. God gave Adam his blood. And so it was with the Lord Jesus Christ. God provided the blood for the Lord Jesus Christ, sinless, precious God blood that has the power to forgive and cleanse your sin. And so the Lord Jesus comes into you, but in the person of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 4, 6, because you're sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The spirit of God comes within you. Christ comes within you in the person of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, what know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God, and you're not your own? Therefore, glorify, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his, which are God's. And so the Lord Jesus enters into you in the person of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. The Spirit of God is the earnest, is the down payment that God will finish and complete the transactions bringing you to heaven because he's given you of his spirit. That's the down payment of all of your heavenly inheritance that you're going to inherit when the Lord comes again. And so those that are saved have the indwelling Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. Those who are not saved, they can be religious. They can have a wonderful veneer. They can look religious. They can sound religious. They might know the lingo of salvation talk, but they're not saved. Second Timothy 3, 5, they have a form of godliness. But deny the power thereof. There's power in the gospel. There's power in the life transformation that the grace of God produces in a sinner who comes by faith to Christ, receiving him as Savior. And so don't be just among those that are religious. The religionists. Lord God, word of God has so much to say about these kind of people. I could preach dozens of messages just on that subject. Those who say they're saved, they appear to be religious and even moral, upright, great citizen, great neighbor, great husband, great mother, great father, great great brothers, great great workers. I mean, and they're not saved. They're not indwelt by the Spirit of God. They are the foolish. Outward assemblance, yes, religious. They know even what the Bible says. They pray. They do good religious works. They're kind, they're loving people, but they're not saved. Are you saved? Are you indwelt by Christ himself and the person of the Holy Spirit? Do you have the oil? Well, that's the premise. I have all P's in my outline. I love outlining. So the premise is you either have the oil or you don't. <laughs> the foundation, the bottom line is that you're saved or lost. You're either saint or an ain't. So what is it for you? Are you prepared? And these people, these five, were foolish. They made no preparation. They brought lamps 
with no oil. And you might be here, maybe you're ignorant of how the genuine salvation of God works, and we love you, we want to help you. You don't have to remain ignorant. We have enough Bible here that can save the whole world. <laughs> and so don't be unprepared, don't be ignorant, don't forget the oil, don't forget the Lord Jesus and what he promised for you. And so the wise took oil in their vessels. And from the premise, I move to the problem. This is where we'll actually leave off this morning. And tonight, we'll look at the pronouncement. We'll look at the predicament. We'll look at the plight. Are you ready for that? All right, pastor's going to be with me. Anybody else? All right. And so here's the problem, verse 5. We'll end with verse 5 and 6 through 13 tonight at 6 o'clock. And you know where we're going. All right, so while the bridegroom tarried, because we don't know when he's coming, it says he that will come will not tarry in, in the mind of God. God knows exactly when Christ is coming, but we don't. As far as our thinking goes with a finite mind, he's tarrying. He, he's not yet come. But while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Do you see a problem there? <laughs> This is a real basic problem. The problem is they were all asleep. Now, we would expect the unwise, we would expect the unsaved to be asleep. And that's why God gave us his word in Ephesians 5.14, which says, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. If you're here and you're not saved, you are in the sleep of death. You are in the sleep of judgment. There's one step between you and hell. And every beat of your heart is a gift of God's mercy to you. Every breath you draw into your lungs is a gift from God. Because you're not yet saved. He could have consumed you a long time ago. You could be in hell today. And as I know, I got saved at age 20. So many times God could have taken my life if he wanted to. I, I'm sorry to share with you. I was such a, a boozer <laughs> and a lot of alcohol and drugs and those things. And, and I would drive drunk and I, I'd, get, I'd get home. i wake up the night. I don't even remember going home. How did I even get home? But I drove drunk home And if God wanted me to. In April of 1975, I was in a very tragic car accident. I should have died. That little Triumph Spitfire became a ball of steel. Engine came right into the front seat. We had a, a cliff at 70 miles an hour, knocked unconscious, thrown out of the car, bloodied, and taken the emergency room. If God wanted to consume me, he could have done it. That's why Acts 17.30, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at. doesn't mean he winks at sin or approves sin. But it simply means, in the time of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. He could have consumed me long ago. He could have consumed you long ago. You hear this gospel message, you don't want to be saved, and you reject, you refuse, you resist. The Spirit of God right now convicting you of your sin, convincing you that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, God come in the flesh, who gave himself a sacrifice for your sin and rose again, and you refuse that and you die, you'll die in your sins and go to a devil's hell. That's the Bible fact. So we expect the unsaved to be asleep spiritually in the sleep of death. But what about these five wise ones, Pastor? What are we going to do with them? 
They're the wise. They've got oil. And yet they're asleep. So let me conclude with this application. How many of God's people, saved, born-again people, are sleeping spiritually? God has a lot to say about that. And do you realize even in Matthew 26, the Lord Jesus chides his apostles, his disciples, because they kept falling asleep on him while he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord Jesus in his lowest moment, the Lord Jesus at a critical time of his life and very soon would give his life on the cross. If there was ever a time he needed his people, if there's ever a time that he would have appreciated the encouragement, stay awake with me while I agonize with the Father. And yet, what happened, Matthew 26 and verse 40, And he, the Lord Jesus, cometh unto his disciples and findeth them asleep. And he said unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. You've got to spend much time in the Word of God. You've got to spend a lot of time in prayer, believer, if you want success. If you want victory, you don't want to fall into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Isn't that true? Well, he finds them sleeping again in verse 43. Then verse 45, then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Seems like every born-again believer wants to obey that command. Oh, sleep, take my rest. Come unto me and I will give you rest. And I took him up on it. There are believers, saved people, who are sleeping spiritually, who need to be in prayer, who need to be in the Word of God, and they're not. Do you realize 80% of born-again believers do not know what it means to have a disciplined devotional life. I'm talking about time every day in the Word of God and in prayer. I'm not talking about five minutes with the Baptist bread. I'm not talking about little devotional things that you read hastily and go out the door to work. 80% do not know what it means to be disciplined. I like the gauge of the Lord. Can you not watch with me one hour? I think that's a good gauge. Could you spend an hour every day, maybe a half hour in the Word of God and a half hour in prayer? I don't know what it is. We're, we're all different in our schedules. But could you not watch with me one hour? I notice you watched the news for an hour. I notice you went to Internet and Facebook and, and, and all those other things. I notice you spend time on that. So don't say I don't have time for that. You have time to do what you really want to do, believer. <laughs> Will you watch with him for one hour? Will you give him priority in your life? Will you make God the top of your value system, flowing out of your value system or your priorities? Why is it some true born-again believers never come back Sunday night? You know why? It's not a priority because that's never been part of your value system. You've never ascribed that level of worth and value to the God of heaven. And you've not valued what he values. He values the local church. Acts 20, he gave his blood, he gave his life for the church. God designed your faith to need what we do here at the local church. God doesn't have any Lone Ranger Christians. We assemble. We forsake not the assembly. So there's reasons God sent man. 
We need what we get here at this place or Hospital Road tonight. And so many believers are asleep when it comes to time with God and his word and his prayers. 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Paul said to the church at Corinth, Awake! Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. What a toe stomper that is. 95% of born-again, blood-bought, heaven-bound children of God are not actively engaged in evangelism. Handing out gospel tracts, turning conversations over to spiritual things that you can present the gospel. 95% do not know the joy of sharing Christ with a lost sinner. I speak this to your shame. And again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm King James, brother. I really am. I tell you, uh, 47 years. I got saved in a King James, had it ever since. But there's also a little value. <laughs> I don't use a lot of Greek. You know why I don't use a lot of Greek? Because I don't want you to ever get the idea you've got to learn Greek to understand the New Testament. You can spend a lifetime obeying the English. <laughs> so that word, I speak this to your shame. Shame is the word entropy. Any scientific-minded people here, the law of entropy, which is also the second law of thermodynamics, which proves there can be no such thing as evolution. <laughs> Because everything's declining, everything's decaying. And, and, and Paul says to the church at Corinth, your faith is decaying. Your faith is declining. You are in regression if you're not a witness for Jesus Christ. I speak this to your entropy. I speak this, it's a shame that you'd allow your Christian life to devolve and decline in such a way that people all around you your family and your friends and your circle of influence and where you work are going to hell and we have the message that can change their eternal destiny and we'll never share it. You're asleep. If that's you, God says you're asleep. Awake to righteousness and sin not for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Wake up! Wake up. And then our Lord also has a, a final admonition about being asleep even as believers let me read this for you or you can turn there if you want to join me in Romans 13 it certainly uh, certainly invite you to do so but here's our final scripture Romans 13 11 and that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep he's talking to save believers for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Isn't that true? <laughs> I got saved in 76, but I guarantee 2024 is nearer to the coming of Christ than it was in 76. <laughs> For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us, therefore, cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. He's saying you are spiritually asleep if you allow any things of the darkness of this world to invade your mind or your heart or your soul. And this world is very alluring. A lot of things out in this world that can attract us. But we have to make sure that we resist those things. If you allow any of the darkness of this world, whether it's internet pornographies or materialism or greed or dishonor, whatever it is, 
God says that it is possible that his people could be involved in some of these things of darkness, but he adjures us, cast off those works of darkness, put on the armor of light. So it's possible as a believer to be asleep as these five wise virgins also slept. All ten of them are sleeping. Do we expect the unsaved to be asleep spiritually? But not the so perhaps God is speaking to your heart even about some of these things tonight. All were asleep. That's a problem. As I've gone through some of these things, is there an area you know as a believer you're asleep? Did you hear the word of God when it says, wake up? What a great time at a revival meeting to wake up. <laughs> what a great time even this morning to say, you're right. The Spirit of God's convicted me. The word of God is true. There are areas of my Christian life where I'm asleep. I need to be awakened. I need the Lord by His Spirit to shake me up. <laughs> Wake up! <laughs> oh, my friend, today, number one, are you, are you saved? Are you born again? Do you have the oil? Do you have the oil? It's not God's will that you should be excluded in any way. Timothy 2, 4, who would have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. It's God's will, it's his desire to convict you of your sins and convince you, convincing, only he can do that, convince you and persuade you that this message is true. Are you ready? Are you prepared? You're not saved, you're not ready, you're not prepared. You step out of this room and you're killed instantly in some car accident, which did happen one time when I preached and I said this very thing. And that's exactly what happened. One of those people went out of that place, rejecting, resisting, refusing Christ. In a car accident, he was dead and in hell. This is serious stuff. And we need to learn to take it seriously. Are you prepared? Do you have the oil? Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, 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 keep me burning till the break of Do you have it? The Spirit of God inhabit your body, soul, and life. If not, we would love to talk with you. It would be our great joy to give you all the time you need today to understand the gospel and the salvation that God offers freely by His grace. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. God offers it to you freely by his grace. The gift of God is eternal life. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we end this session, and we look forward to the continuation of this message from Matthew 25 this evening, my great desire and the great desire of you, Father, is that these people that may be here this morning that are not saved, that they would come to repentance and faith. It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed, whose compassions fail not. You could have consumed us a long time ago. We could be in hell already. <laughs> but you have preserved our lives to this very hour. Lord, is there someone here this very hour who's not yet indwelt by the oil of the Holy Spirit, has not yet embraced, received, accepted, and appropriated the risen Christ? 
his shed blood and death as their payment for sin. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, is the simplest way I know how to do this. If there's anyone here this morning say, I'm not sure if I die tonight I go to heaven. I'm not sure if the Lord Jesus Christ comes again today that I'm ready, that I'm prepared. But after that message and God's word and God's spirit convincing me and persuading me that this is true, I would be very interested to talk with you or someone after the service today. I want to settle this matter in my heart. I want to know that I have eternal life. I want to know that my sins are forgiven and the guilt is lifted. I want to know I have the oil today. I want to be wise, not foolish. Anyone like that, would you simply slip up your hand? I'm, I'm watching. I'm just looking for anyone that would say, I will talk with you after the service. I will respond. I want to know more about, my, about Jesus Christ and how he can save my soul. Anyone like that? My believer friend, may God speak to our hearts about being asleep. We need revival. Wilt thou not revive us again? We might rejoice in it.